I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Today it's all about hedges. I'm exploring how to care for an old favourite, you, at the UK's oldest surviving hedge maze, learning about the benefits of hedges for our environment, and hearing how to protect your hedge from the box tree moth. I'm Guy Barter. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS. I've just got off the train at Hampton Court, walked across the bridge over the Thames, and here I am in front of Henry VIII's most famous residence, Hampton Court Palace in Surrey. When Henry VIII finished his building programme in around 1540, Hampton Court was the most modern, magnificent palace in England, and the gardens were pretty incredible too. They were once the exclusive playground of kings and queens, with new ideas and designs arriving with each era from the Tudors through to the Victorians. And in 1838, the whole place was open to the public on royal orders. Thanks to Queen Victoria, visitors could now stroll through the Great Fountain Garden, the Privy Garden, the Pond Gardens, the Royal Kitchen Garden, the Rose Garden, the list goes on. But I'm heading north of the palace in search of one particular structure, the UK's oldest surviving hedge maze. I'm off to meet the man responsible for keeping it looking fit for royalty, garden manager Graham Dillamore. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Hampton Court. Thank you. Yes, let's walk to the maze. Wonderful collection of narcissus who built up over the years. Yeah, it's uh, kind of mainly, mainly unrecorded as well. It was very randomly started in the 70s. And here we are. Here we are. This maze at Hampton Court was part of a much larger scheme that they called the wilderness here at Hampton Court. And it first started to be developed at the end of the 1600s, the late 1600s. And the maze was just one component of three, four, or even five similar structures or similar features in this wilderness garden. It's the only one that we're very proud to say that survives and is still in the exact same place, laid out in the same pattern as it would have been in the late 1600s. Interesting that they put a clipped maze in the middle of a wilderness. Perhaps they'd like the, the contrast. I think the word wilderness perhaps has a different meaning to us than what it did back then in the 17th century. 
I think when we think of the word wilderness today, we think of a part of a country or a region of the world where it's uninhabitable and no man has ever gone before and it's a, a jungle, a wilderness. In the 17th and 18th century, the word wilderness has a different meaning. And it's a word that's used in gardens to mean an area that's laid out in often in a formal way, but would mean for you to be wilder, meaning that you could be lost or you could be looking for an answer or you could be looking for a way out. So you would wander through this area. It would be a designed area, but it would give you a feeling of being lost. That's going to be interesting today because, as listeners may have noticed, we're on the flight path to Heathrow and we're not far from a busy road junction yeah. <laughs> here in Hampton Court. But um, who used this maze originally? Did kings and queens walk through this maze and get lost and have to be rescued by the courtiers or something like that? Yes, that's it, really, in a nutshell. It's a very private area. It was uh, designed in that period when William and Mary were here at Hampton Court. And the garden and the wilderness then was seen as a playground where you could come and enjoy a walk through the paths, see different features. You might hear music, there might be courtiers, there might be a joker. So it would be a garden full of surprises. Perhaps you could come here at night with torchlight. It could be quite frightening. All those things that would have stimulated the senses would have all gone on in here in the maze for just a few select royal people. The design of the maze, how long does it take to get to the centre, assuming an ordinary walking pace? Well, yeah, ordinary walking pace. Uh, and if you made a few wrong turns, so allowing for a few mistakes, I would imagine you could find the centre in 15, 20 minutes. And the mm. centre of Hampton Court Maze is uh, a very, very popular place for doing many, many things. It's a very popular, or was a very popular place for asking someone for their hand in marriage. Mm. And if they were reluctant, presumably they could steer you on shot to the wrong <laughs> And if you... <laughs> that's right. If, you, if the answer was no, then you could, you know, part company there and then and never see each other again. We're looking at a really lovely, beautifully clipped yew hedge behind us here now. And truly, there's no finer hedge than yew. Has it always been yew? No. It originally started off as hornbeam, which, and we've got sections of that behind you there. Originally, we know it as hornbeam and elm. Well, your listeners will not be surprised to know what happened to the elm. Oh, yes, Dutch elm disease. It arrived in Britain from abroad on contaminated logs, and then it was spread by a beetle over the almost all of Britain. But the hornbeam does remain in a few places and a few other areas we've restored some of the hornbeam sections of it. It would appear that the yew, the taxa, started to be drifted in after the Second World War. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, taxa replaces the hornbeam as the hornbeam became quite overgrown and couldn't really cope anymore and it gets replaced with a, an evergreen with the yew, which obviously makes it a lot darker in there. We're walking through the maze itself now, closely clipped yew on each side of us. There's iron rails within the yew so that naughty people can't burst their way through and spoil the maze and cheat. And um, it's about eight foot high, I suppose, seven or eight foot high, and it deadens the noise beautifully. We're thinking it could make a good permanent recording studio. 
And we're just standing aside for a school party now. There's enormous excitement as they rush around the maze. <laughs> Do you think they'll all come out, or will you have to rescue well, some I, at the I, end I of the know. day? There might be a few stragglers, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> ah, screams. There's a great deal of excitement here. Mazes have that effect on people, don't they? It doesn't have to be that mysterious or exciting or dark or complicated, but the minute people step over that threshold into there, for some reason they start screaming. It just has this natural effect. It's a good feel-good thing, you know, as well. You know, I always say, oh, if I'm feeling low or down or whatever, I go in the garden and the gardens naturally have this healing quality. And mazes are part of that, I think. It just makes you feel good. Now, hedge cutting is not one of the most popular activities among RHS members. It's probably above lawn mowing, but not much. How do you care for your hedge? Well, it's not easy. There are half a mile of paths in the maze, so double that, because a hedge either side to clip. So it's a mile of hedging. And if you take the entrance and exits, it's probably a bit more than that as well. So what we have to do uh, in about June or July is to start very, very early at first light each day. And it takes us about three to four weeks. And you use powered hedge cutters? Well, in the early days, when, as I say, when I first came to Hampton Court, the tools used then were a pair of hand shears. And I had a gang of about six to eight gardeners in the maze at one time, clipping away with these hand shears. And you can imagine the noise of these hand shears, click, 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 click. And then we went over to petrol two-stroke machines. Now, in the past four or five years, I'm happy to report that we've gone to battery-powered equipment, as many of your RHS members, I'm sure, will know, which are lighter, quieter, and there's no fumes, they're much easier to use. It still takes the same amount of time, funnily enough, but it's a far more easier operation than it used to be. And much better for the environment. Mm. And I do ever get pests and things used pretty good, but you can get scale insects, for example. Have you ever? We do get some scale insects. We're just tolerant of it. Uh, we don't spray in the maze. It's too big an area. I just don't think it'd be worthwhile. I don't think we'd achieve much by doing that. As you said, the yew is pretty tough. Um, provided we keep the, the plant as healthy as we can, we do give it a, an organic feed. Every spring you feed it, do yeah, you? Yeah, we give it a feed yeah. every April. You probably want quite a lot of growth so it always looks healthy despite the wear and tear of large numbers of children yeah. barging through like they were just now. Yeah, one of the problems with mazes is you get a lot of top growth. The hedge just wants to go up. And that's not really... <laughs> it's nice, but it's not really where you want the growth is on the sides. But with three, 300,000 people a year passing through it and brushing alongside, our challenge is to try and get some growth on the, on the sides, and that can be quite difficult. So how do you go about that? Because it's a common problem of anyone who owns a hedge is it tends to go bare at the base. Mm. Well, maintaining a batter is really important. And what's it? this batter? Well, a batter meaning that you lean the hedge in from when we're planting new, you, the hedge has a lean to it, so it leans for, uh, inwards. So it allows more light into the hedge and also moisture or natural rainfall has more chance of reaching the rootfall. So your hedge is slightly thinner at the top than the base? Yes. When I say thinner, I mean not quite as wide at the top. I wouldn't want to cast aspersions on the thickness of your hedges, but <laughs> wider at the base than at the top. But yeah, that's yeah. the goal. Sometimes you have to do some very hard pruning, which we might do in the late summer, just to try and bring that batter back. Yeah. Would it be better, do you think, if someone had a hedge at home to, do, to prune more than once a year? With taxus, I think you can over prune it and you, you can over trim it, and they look as almost 
sort of shaved to within an inch of their life. And I, I'm never sure that that's a great thing. I, I like to see a hedge or a plant put on its growth naturally, and then it be pruned once a year, and then it's allowed to regrow after that. I think it's good for wildlife as well and um, gives shelter for wildlife if you allow the hedges just to beef up a little bit. Well, of course, you've got some fabulous yew topiary here, including ones that are about the size of a house. That, um, sometimes I've seen you cut to a mere stump, and yet they still recover, yeah. which is, I think, one of the wonders of the world. Have you any topiary tips for our listeners? If you're starting from scratch, try and find good plant stock. If it's taxus or yew, which are probably the best for forming shapes, try and choose your plant stock with a single leader. If you buy uh, taxus now from garden centres, they usually come as a, a kind of a hedging plant, which is their multi-stemmed. With topiary, you want to try and be selective in what you're buying. And if you can find a plant, a young taxus plant with a single stem, just a single leader, and grow that up, that will enable you to train and shape that plant much more easier than it will be if it's multi-stemmed. If they're multi-stems, they tend to just spread and split and go their own way, and you have to end up trying to tie them in. Graham, why would you advise people to search out their local maze and explore it, or come to Hampton Court, which is obviously even better? I think when you go out in a garden now these days, or you're outdoors, all the answers are there in front of you. With mazes, you don't know the answer, and there's a great excitement that everybody can get from just that little bit of the unknown. And that, I think, in all of us, is something that we crave for, but we don't often find it. So go to a maze. You might not know the answer, but the excitement and fun you'll get from finding the center or the goal will be well worthwhile. It was fascinating to hear the story of the famous maze at Hampton Court. I had no idea it was replanted with you so recently, and that for many, many years it was made of clipped elm. Even before Dutch elm disease, one seldom encountered hedges made of elm. So I'm really sorry to have missed that. It must have been a sight to see. If you're hoping to plant your own new hedge or create a maze, there are a few things to consider. When you're planting a hedge, particularly you, plant the trees close together. There's no particular advantage in buying really big ones at great price. We found at Wisley that a yew hedge forms a beautiful six-foot barrier in as little as five years, as long as you keep it weed-free and water it for the first summer. Hedges create living boundaries to our gardens. They provide texture and architectural interest all year round. But aside from this, Hedges have a huge positive environmental impact from capturing pollution to providing food and shelter for wildlife. After visiting the maze at Hampton Court, I was reminded of a brilliant piece of research by the RHS Environmental Horticulture team looking at the huge benefits of hedges. Back in 2019, RHS Garden Wisley hosted an event where we spoke to Dr Mark Gush. I have the privilege of talking about the work that my colleague, Dr. Tiana Blanusa, has done over the past 11 years or so, where she's been heavily involved in hedge research and looked at all the ecosystem services that hedges can deliver. And for example, pollution and particulate capture. She's found that dense hedges with high leaf areas 
with hairy leaves and rough leaves tend to capture more particle pollutants than um, smoother leaves and lesser dense canopies where air can pass more readily through the hedge. Tiana did some experiments looking at the ability of hedges to mitigate rainfall events, um, prevent localised flooding and act as sustainable urban drainage systems and solutions. And uh, she compared three species um, with a bare soil substrate. She looked at Cotoniaster, Crotagus and Thuya. And by measuring through fall and runoff from pots that were subjected to simulated rainfall events, she found that Cotoniaster and the Crotagus species not only prevented runoff by capturing a lot of the rainfall, but also reduced the amount of runoff through their high evapotranspiration rates and through the, the rainfall capture that was able to be done by the canopy. Broadly speaking, across the UK, the most effective hedge species include beech, yew, holly, privet and western cedar. But if you are looking to address a particular environmental service, for example, pollution capture, if you live next to a busy road and would like to plant a screen to mitigate against pollutants coming into your garden, the English yew, Taxus baccata, and the western red cedar, Thuya plicata, are two very good species for that particular purpose. On the other hand, if you're looking to mitigate against flooding and absorb water from the soil and dry out the soil, then Crotagus and Cotoniaster are both have been shown through scientific research to be very effective in absorbing water from the soil, in capturing rainfall, and in alleviating localised flooding. So they are the two most effective species. If you, on the other hand, you want to promote biodiversity and pollinators coming to your garden, as wide a range of suitable species as possible is recommended, not, not a monoculture of what, just one species but some of the suggestions that would do well for biodiversity provision and pollination encouragement would be Crotagus, the hawthorn, viburnum species, beech, the vagus sylvatica, and some pyracantha species as well. So it's generally a combination of multiple species if you try to encourage biodiversity and wildlife. Finally, um, if you are wanting to cut down on noise, particularly from traffic into a particular garden, you're looking for a dense, hedge species with high leaf area and thick foliage and the yew comes out as a, a good contender for that particular purpose. Also Japanese barberry, the Berberus thunbergii is a good selection as well as western red cedar, cherry laurel and holly. So we've heard all about the benefits of hedges but there is one creature that causes problems for certain species. Over to RHS plant health scientist Steph Bird to explain all about the box tree caterpillar. So the box tree moth, Cydolima perspectalis, is a moth. It belongs to the insect order Lepidoptera, along with other moths and butterflies. The adults of these insects have four wings covered in scales. So there are two forms of the box tree moth. There's a normal kind of white one with browny grey borders and another one that's predominantly browny grey with little white crescents. And this is the melanic form and it's less common than the white form. Both moths have a lovely sort of iridescent purple sheen if you look at them at an angle. The larvae of the moths are called caterpillars and this is this stage that causes damage to box plants. So it's been a serious problem on box in mainland Europe since it arrived from Asia in 2006. 
the arrival of Boxtree Moth was predicted and foreseen and we thought it would get here and it has done and it is, it is a problem. The adult moth was first recorded in Britain in 2007 but it wasn't until 2011 that caterpillars were reported from private gardens. It's now widely distributed across southern England and it's become an ongoing problem for box growers since its arrival. It's regularly featured in our top ten most frequent entomology inquiries. So at this time of year, the UK population of this insect will be overwintering very small caterpillars and as it warms up in the spring, they start to become active again and resume their feeding. So as small caterpillars, they graze away at the leaf surface, creating windows of thinner tissue on the leaves. And as they grow larger, they are able to eat more of the leaves. So on affected plants, you may notice the leftovers of leaves they've tried to eat. So often the harder tissues like the midrib and the leaf margins remain. The largest caterpillars will eat entire leaves and bark when leaf material has been consumed. Other signs you might notice on your box plants are webbing and little pellets of frass, so insect excrement, fall underneath the plants. So this can be mistaken for eggs, but actually the eggs of this insect are very hard to find. They're kind of semi-transparent, slightly yellowish as they get older, plaques, which are very difficult to spot. So if you spot the green balls, they're not eggs, it's caterpillar excrement. I would say that box is a pretty resilient plant and it will recover from even complete defoliation. However, infestations multiple times a year and in successive years will probably lead to a lack of figure and may result in box plants failing, especially when coupled with the disease pressures already faced by box. And obviously where they, the caterpillars can girdle sections, those won't regrow afterwards, but you'll have growth on other areas of the plant. If you're struggling with box tree caterpillars, there are options available that you could take. We list all of the control measures available to the home gardener on our web profile. I'd recommend a combination of methods, so things like the handpicking. However diligent you are, I don't think you're going to be 100% effective and it's going to be very time-consuming. I'd recommend using pheromone traps, but not as a control method in itself, more as kind of information on how to time other treatments. There are nematodes available, and these are effective, but again, they won't catch everything. There are other insects in your garden ready to help you. So gardeners, you're not on your own. There are parasitoid wasps and parasitoid flies along with birds which are now recognising the caterpillar as a food source. In the garden you already also have predators in normal wasps and spiders and ants. So there are natural enemies in the UK. The box tree moth and its destructive caterpillar are very bad news for gardeners. Unfortunately, experience on the continent suggests that the box tree caterpillar will persist and be a problem for the foreseeable future. Although it's possible to keep a hedge free of damage by repeated applications of insecticide, this is not terribly environmentally friendly and in the long run replanting with different species will be required. One of the species we've used quite a lot are you for our hedges and for our topiary.
one of the things the RHS is doing, as well as Steph's research, is testing or trialling different kinds of evergreen hedging plants that have potential to replace box. These are in the walled garden at Wisley. So if you're visiting Wisley, go and have a look and see what you think. We think there's some very promising ones in there. For example, some of the pittosporums, which you wouldn't really think of as being a hedge that took a lot of heavy pruning, are looking particularly good. It's possible that a natural balance will be achieved between the box tree moth and its enemies. For example, at Ham House, jackdaws feast on these caterpillars. It's unclear whether they'll eat enough to keep the hedges free of damage, but it'll be interesting to see how our native birds start predating this caterpillar and whether they can kill enough to protect hedges from significant damage. If today's episode has piqued your interest, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast for more hedge inspiration and advice. Thanks for listening and happy clipping. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.